You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I am really excited about today's show. My guest is Tim Ferriss, who is the author of Tools of Titans, as well as the four-hour body workweek chef series. Tim is someone who I've gotten to know a little bit in the last couple of years, and, and more importantly, whose podcast I got to know quite a bit in the last couple of years. I am a big fan of it. Definitely encourage you all to check it out. It was an inspiration for me to do this podcast, as we talk about a little bit in the show. Tim is a very thoughtful advice, productivity, live better, life hack kind of guy. I think a lot of that stuff is not very useful, but I think he comes at it with a real useful spirit of experimentation and some real enthusiasm. So I I learn a lot from him. I think that you'll learn a lot from this podcast. We go into areas we don't normally go into in this podcast, like why you should think about death a lot and why it is useful to suffer alongside your friends in order to forge closer friendships, and how Tim thinks about nootropics and performance-enhancing drugs. There's a lot of fun stuff in here, a lot of things that you can take and apply in a very concrete way to your own life. So I think it'll prove useful to people, and I hope you all enjoy it. As always, a couple quick requests. Please check out my other podcast, Weeds, where I go deep on policy and politics with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. Please continue to email me at EzraKleinShowAtBox.com with guest requests and feedback. And please share this podcast. If you like it, share whichever episode is your favorite episode on email, Twitter, Facebook. Send it to a friend. Send it to your mom. It is how we grow our audience. I am very grateful for it. All that said, without further ado, here is Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited you're here. I have Tools for Titans. Uh, you gave it to me, actually. And I really like it. I have given it as a gift to other people. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the book. I appreciate that. It's it's a, it's a bit of a behemoth. So if you get tired of reading it, you can use it as a doorstop or for self-defense. <laughs> 700 pages, add some half to it. I say this in, in an extremely complimentary way. It is an amazing book for a bedside table or a bathroom. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a reference book. It is a you choose-your-own-adventure type format. So it's meant to be dipped in and out of certainly not necessarily read cover to cover. It's one of those books. So I have read it cover to cover. I've been a listener of your podcast for a long time. Um, really enjoyed being on it recently. And something that is behind the book and is behind the podcast is where I wanted to start. Something you don't really talk about in the book, but seems to be pretty important in the work you do, is that you seem to have a, a 
talent for for lack of a better term, for friendship. You seem to have a lot of people you know who who think of you very warmly, very fondly, who are very comfortable with you. I'm curious how you think about that that piece of your life. How do you meet these people and then build an actual personal relationship with so many of them? Good question. It's a good topic, too. I would say that there are a few pieces of the puzzle that come to mind. The first is that I choose my projects along the lines of what Scott Adams the creator of Dilbert would call systems thinking. So I tend to look not at my life in terms of five or 10 year plans, but six month projects. And I choose those projects based in part on the relationships and skills that I will develop that could transcend that project. So I'm constantly looking for relationships that can persist and skills that can persist over many, many projects, many, many years, maybe many decades. And with that mindset, I think I tend to be less transactional in how I interact with people. So that's point number one. Uh, And underlying that is point number two, and that is an assumption that if you want to develop relationships with someone in almost any field, perhaps any field, there are people within that group that can be close friends of yours. And so you should just strive to develop relationships with those people. You don't have to compromise and develop lots of relationships with people who intrinsically you dislike or don't want to spend time with just for professional purposes. Within that group, you should be able to find someone who threads the needle and is someone who's not only, say, top 1% of what they do, but also someone that you can enjoy having drinks with, hanging out with, and introducing to other people. Those are two of the things that come to mind. And I would also say that, for instance, when it comes to even investing in startups, which I've done a lot of, although I stopped about two years ago, but from say 2007 to 2015, I was very, very active. And two of the most successful angel investors I know used what they called the beer test or the mall test. And the beer test was, would you invite this person out to have beers with you on a regular basis? And the mall test, although this is kind of antiquated, is if you're walking through a mall and they were coming the opposite direction on the opposite side, say 40 feet away, you know, would you say, hey, how you doing? And run over to see what they're up to. Would you kind of give a polite nod and a wave and continue on your way? Or would you shield your face and sort of look in the opposite direction like Jason Bourne to avoid being detected? And then the answer always had to be the first. And that is because in related to the systems thinking in the case of, say, startups, you're looking at a seven to 12-year haul in many cases before a successful exit or not, and you want to enjoy the process. So those are, those are a few. No one's ever asked me that. I actually yeah. want to dig into it a little bit more because I think friendship, given how important it is in people's lives, it's odd how little people actually talk about it. And something that friends of mine have said or people I know have said or I've heard people complain about is just that it becomes harder to create friendships as you get older. When you're younger, there's just a lot of structured places for, for friendships to develop. There's school, there's summer camp, there's college, you you know move to D.C., you live in a group house. And then you know folks get partnered up or they live on their own or whatever it might be. And maybe they do find somebody at work or find somebody in their professional set they like and think they could be friends with. And they go out for a drink and then it's like, what? Mm-hmm. What do you do next without that? overarching superstructure. So I'm curious about that piece of it. You meet people, you clearly have developed a lot of friendships in different parts of your life. When you meet somebody who you feel like you got that that got that connection with, 
How do you actually convert that from a professional relationship? You guys went out for beers and talked about startup investing, whatever it might be, to something where you guys are, are going, as it always seems you are, and surfing in some beautiful uh, tropical <laughs> locale. Well, I think that there are a few things worth noting. The first is that I have access to a lot of people, as do you, which creates sometimes the illusion that I maintain weekly interactions with all of these people all the time. And that is simply not the case because the access comes from developing close relationships with people who are hubs of the wheel. And then you can travel out on their spokes and they can very easily introduce you to the people that you might want to ask a particular question, let's say, or ask to include something in Tools of Titans, for instance. And with the people I develop very close relationships with, which are not that many, I'm actually a closet introvert and I get very drained in large groups. But I find, I do not think this is gender specific, although this tends to be something I experience more with males is what General Stanley McChrystal would call shared privations. If you want to improve mental toughness and forge bonds, some type of shared suffering is very helpful. And I don't think about it this mechanically, if that makes sense. This is just something I enjoy doing. But I will invite, say, a group of four or five people to go to the Russian baths or the Russian and Turkish baths in New York to do the hot and the ice plunge or cold plunge in repeating cycles or to go on, say, a weekend hiking trip that will not just be hot chocolate and gummy bears on flat ground. There will be some type of taxing exercise or suffering involved. Or it could be, like you said, some type of paddleboarding in Costa Rica or something like that, which does have a fear factor and absolutely has a fatigue factor. So those are those are a few things that come to mind. Group dinners are a less <laughs> intense way of forging this, but whenever possible, trying to introduce the people I like and value to other people I like and value also spreads it spreads the workload a bit, if that makes sense, so that I don't feel like I have to shoulder the weekly interactions with 100 people or 200 people. If I make the proper introductions, which isn't a zero-sum game, it actually improves my sort of social stock in that case, then I can really spend a lot of time in any given city with only five or six people and still maintain very good rapport and slightly weaker ties, but nonetheless powerful with a much larger group of people. It doesn't have to be that complicated. I remember when the four-hour workweek, the first book I wrote, hit its tipping point. If you backtrack about a month, this is at South by Southwest, and the way I met so-called influencers, who I don't think were even called that at that time, they were bloggers and so on, who I am still friends with to this day. So that is 10 years ago, almost on the date that we were talking. And 10 years later, I'm still friends with almost all of these people. And the way that happened is rather than going to panels and then bum rushing the panelists who were very often celebrities in their own worlds, I would go to the moderator who was never getting the same amount of love and talk to them for a bit. And then I would just say, I'm at South by Southwest because I wrote my first book. I'm trying to learn more about X, Y, and Z. Is there anybody who comes to mind you think I would really enjoy speaking with? And the wording there is really important. 
It's not, is there anybody you know who might be able to help me? Because that could get a bunch of douchebags and also just incompatible people into the mix. It was, this is what I'm looking for. Is there anyone you think I would really enjoy speaking with? And I also told them about some of my other non-work hobbies. I'm into this, this, and this, but I'm out at South by Southwest for this, this, and this. Is there anyone you think I would really enjoy speaking with? And then I just followed the breadcrumbs. They would say, talk to Jack Jones. Okay. I talked to Jack Jones. We hang out. We have a couple of beers. We have a great time. Cool. Like, is there anybody else here? I don't know anybody you think I would really enjoy speaking with. Sure. Talk to this person. And I just got bounced around in that way, like a pinball and have maintained relationships with the vast majority of the people that I spent time with. I'm really fascinated by your initial point here about trying to invite people for a bit of shared suffering right off the bat. It reminds me of a, a study I read a while ago, and I don't really remember where I read it now, but it was about how what conditions foster intimacy quickly. And, and I mean just intimacy between people, like friendships. And what they said, the two of the factors they honed in on there were one, unusual experiences, and then two, unexpected meetings. So the, the two things that one, they explained that one reason summer camp is really good for forming these lifelong friendships, even though people only go for a couple of weeks, is that you have a lot of unusual experiences very quickly and you run into people there a lot again and again. You're walking to the dining hall or whatever. I, I didn't go to that much summer camp, so I'm, I'm assuming. And it sounds like you're recreating that a little bit as an adult. Oh, definitely. And I'm also, I, I think that there's a collateral benefit two chance meetings. So if I invite you, Ezra, to go to the Russian baths, that's not a chance meeting with me because you know I'm going to be there and you've already met me. But if I say, hey, I'm inviting a group of, of people to the Russian baths, you should come along. You don't know who those people are. You meet four incredibly interesting folks from different worlds. I benefit from you having those chance encounters. And the whole group, the whole group as a cohesive entity and each person individually and the many sort of different permutations of one-on-one -on -one relationships all benefit from the shared suffering. It's a relatively low labor way to forge resilient bonds really, really quickly in my experience. I've read a bunch of your work of, for folks who don't know your background, you've done the Fora Workweek, the Fora Body, the Fora Chef, you've done Tools for Titans, you, you have this podcast. In your work, it's fair to say in an overarching way, falls into the advice category. You try in systematic ways to help people figure out better ways to live, better ways to spend their time. And something that has struck me reading your library is for all the things you dive into, and you've really covered a tremendous amount of ground from cooking to languages to you know what you put in your body to sex to all kinds of things, you've actually never really focused on relationships at all. And here I mean <laughs> romantic relationships. And I'm curious yeah. if there's a reason. There's definitely a reason. So I don't focus on romantic relationships because I don't feel like I am qualified to give advice on romantic relationships. If I spend time with somebody, let's just say uh, Joe DeFranco, who trains Division One football players for the NFL Combine, then I do feel after spending time with Joe qualified to say, here is how Joe helped me to improve my vertical jump or my 40 yard dash. And here are the main takeaways. I'm borrowing from an expert. I had the firsthand experience and I can share the cliff notes with relationships. If we're talking about romantic relationships, specifically sexual, you can also break down, which is why I've talked about sex. I think you can 
you can experiment in a pretty controlled fashion. I know that sounds very sterile, <laughs> but you can experiment. I'll just note, we are speaking here on Valentine's Day. Right, right. We're speaking <laughs> on Valentine's Day, so it's appropriate. But you can, you can experiment and get better at sex quickly because you can control your variables. With relationships, when people want relationship advice, they are neglecting to appreciate just how many uncontrolled variables there are. So I have good relationships. I've had very good relationships. I've had bad. Of course, we've all made our mistakes. I have my weaknesses, but I don't feel like I am the best person to write about that. And secondly, I tend to only write books that I can't find for myself. So I try to find a book. I can't find it. It really frustrates and annoys me. And then eventually it bothers me so much that I write the book <laughs> for myself, do the research to put the book together and then share it with other people. And in the case of relationships, I actually think there are a lot of good books that have been written on this. It is a genre or a subject area that's really been mined a lot. And most of it's garbage, as is the case with, say, parenting. Even though I don't have kids, I've read a lot of parenting books. Most of it's complete, made-up garbage with no data to support anything. So that's true in relationships as well. But nonetheless, some of them, I think, are quite good and can be very helpful. So unless I can write a book that I can't find and be or and or have a category killer of sorts, I'm not going to dive into that particular area because there's good enough stuff out there already. That might change at some point, but uh, as it stands right now, I don't I don't write a whole lot about <laughs> romantic relationships. Are, are there books on relationships that you've read and, and do recommend? Uh, there are books that I have found worth pondering. That doesn't mean that 100% of the book is, is something I would recommend, but The Five Love Languages I thought was quite interesting as a framework for thinking about and discussing what you or your partner needs. I think many relationship failures are failures of language. For that reason, this, I think, provides a good checklist or framework for discussing relationships and getting what you need and giving what someone else needs. There's a book called The Way of the Superior Man. I think it's David Data who wrote that, which is specifically for men. I think it's also helpful for women very much not politically correct, but I'm not so interested in what's politically correct. I'm interested in what works. <laughs> so that book I read perhaps 10 years ago, I found it helpful at the time, 10 or 15 years ago. I found it helpful at the time. I haven't read it in a very, very long time. Those are two that come to mind offhand as uh, having, found, uh, having found some value in both. It's interesting what you say about relationships being being an issue of language. I had on on this podcast a while back, actually one of my favorite episodes of it, a linguist named Deborah Tannen who studies gender differences in communications. And she studied them in relationships. She's famous for that, but also in workplaces and in a lot of different contexts. And she was explaining to me that when she went into linguistics, she went into it because she learned and, and was taught by a mentor that it was a way of addressing and solving many of the same problems as psychology and therapy with a very different tool set. And I will say, having read some of her books at this point, it's really true. It is really relationship advice in all kinds of different ways, not just romantic. Linguistics is, is it's how we communicate. And that, that seems to be the basis of pretty much everything else. So that stuff is interesting, actually, if you're into it. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. And I view most, if not all, failures of thinking, at least we're talking about conscious processes, or failures of language, I think. And I believe his name is Frank Luntz, 
I might be getting the name slightly off, wrote a book called Words That Work. This is a Republican political strategist. <laughs> so it's slightly different from Deborah, but nonetheless, looking at the power of words and labeling. So how labels and words, often the same thing, of course, impact our thinking, how we view something negatively or positively. I mean, words are thought. So if you, my recommendation always to folks is if you, if you want to become a better thinker, write. You don't have to be a writer, but get into the practice of regular writing because you are in that way freezing your thought on paper, and then you can have people edit your work. And if you're like, well, I don't have an editor, I don't have a writing class to go to, find or hire someone with law training, someone with legal training. They're very good at finding imprecise language or superfluous words, extra stuff that doesn't need to be in. And you can become a much, much better thinker that way. I remember taking a class as an undergraduate called The Literature of Fact, which was taught by John McPhee, who's one of my favorite writers of all time. And in the course of taking that seminar, because we would get our writing assignments back, weekly writing assignments that were, let's say, around two to five pages long, there would be more red ink than black ink on the page, just to give people an idea. And over time, we got tighter and tighter and tighter in our writing. And what I noticed is my grades in every other class went up as my writing improved, because my thinking was improving. So that's Maybe a bit of a digression, but very, very closely related. No, I, th I think that's on point. That's also, it's funny because the movie Arrival is partially about this. It's about mm. the way the language Fantastic you use. Film. Uh, amazing film. film. But the way the language you use changes the way you view the world. And I know you're a big languages guy, so I'm, I'm always fascinated by that, the ways in which different languages create actual different ways of grouping and categorizing the oh, world. Yeah. It's one of, my, one of my great regrets that I've not learned a, a second language. Uh, I can help. I can help with that. <laughs> I, and and uh, for people who like Arrival, it's based on a short story written by Ted Chiang, C-H-I-A-N-G. And there's a collection of short stories that my brother actually got me for Christmas. And it's stories of your life and others. And the the story upon which Arrival is based is in there. But there are, there are some others that are, I think, equally as good, if not better as well. So for the sci-fi nerds out there, that's that's one to pick up. Yeah, that's an amazing story collection. So then a little bit more to, to the core of your of your work. I was thinking about this reading Tools of Titans. You go through that book and, and you go through a lot of your books and it is a relentless search for optimization, a relentless search for can the first hour of my day be better? Can the things <laughs> I cook be better? Can my relationship can well actually not in this case the relationships, but can my work be better? Can I be more creative? Mm -hmm. Can I see my 10 year plan more clearly? And I wanted to zoom out a bit and ask, what is it all for? What is all this getting better at living life? What is the end goal of it? What What is for you the vision of a good life? Well, I think those those could be two different questions. So the optimization... It could probably be many. <laughs> yeah, or many questions. I did just ask you, what is a good life? <laughs> yeah, yeah, let me... I'll take a stab at that in a second. Let me buy, <laughs> buy some time by dancing around that first. So... The optimization and experimentation is really very simple to me. It's about not just getting better because I do believe in any given area, you're either getting stronger, or you're getting weaker. There is no stasis. It's very seldom a holding pattern in nature. So you're either, you're either imposing some sense of order and strengthening a system or you're just falling into entropy and getting weaker. That's a very pressuring way to live. 
I'm not sure it's wrong. It just I, I felt my I felt my anxiety level rising as you said it. Well, I think that it could be a very anxious way to live. For me, it isn't. It's a very experimental way to live. And if you want to get good at anything, by definition, I would say you have to neglect other things. So it's not it's not a tragedy in my mind if something is getting weaker as long as you're aware of it, A. And B, perhaps you've chosen that. You're going to focus on, say, health first, physical fitness. In some cases, that means if you have a poor night's sleep, you need to cancel the first two or three phone calls you've scheduled the next day. So you have put business in second place or lower below health first. And that's okay. And in that particular case, you're going to be perhaps sacrificing some business or professional growth for physical improvement. And that's totally okay. So I don't view it as an anxious thing. It's just a a question of what you're focusing on. But the second piece of it, so it's not just about getting better. It's about cultivating curiosity. I find the constant experimentation to be a playful thing for me. I don't find it overly stress-inducing. Although I do enjoy certain types of stress, that's maybe a separate conversation. I like competition, for instance. It's the cultivating of curiosity and asking questions that helps in everything that I do, whether it's relationships. And I certainly work on my own relationships. I just don't write a lot about them. And to the question of what is the good life, the good life for me, I would say, is to love. That could be people, should be people and things. To be loved, which is less in your control, but helped by the first, and then to never stop learning. If you do those three things, I feel like you're trending upward. You are by, I think, many accounts certainly living the good life. Yeah, we could talk about that. <laughs> Might be a better question for Aristotle, but that's, that's, my, that's my stab at it. Probably all questions are better questions for Aristotle. <laughs> This is getting to things that I I think about and worry about it myself. But I think there's a question in terms of how much, for lack of a better term, slack there needs to be in the system Mm -hmm. to have some of these dimensions of of life be be what they can be and be what they should be. Mm -hmm. I think you can look at some of the productivity literature, some of the productivity impulses. And and again, I have this stuff in myself. I'm I'm not here throwing stones at others. And it can have this quality of just more, more, more. Can I use every minute a little bit better? Can I use every Mm -hmm. second a little bit better? Can I spend less time sleeping is one I'm always working on and it leaves my wife completely aghast. And (laughs) you will read critiques, and I think some of them are persuasive, that you get into this sort of to-do list mentality of of your own life that even as you're doing all this stuff to become more optimized and more productive, that those sort of measurable, tangible things that that you're pursuing end up crowding out other things that need more space and more rest and more slack and less of a focus on an optimization to grow. I'm curious if you think that critique has has weight and if there are ways then that you respond to it. The critique has weight. I don't think it's a criticism of any position that I've taken uh, in the sense that I do think the cult of productivity in its many forms can be self-defeating. And the principal way in which I think it is not a charade, but a lot of hand-waving and a lot of stress, much activity, little productivity is 
the focus on efficiency instead of effectiveness, meaning there is a lot of content focus and dozens of books, certainly, that are published about how to do things faster, in effect, right? So how can I cram as much as possible into every hour of my day? That's not where I focus uh, because it's, it's, an, it's incredibly possible. In fact, it's very prevalent to confuse busyness with being effective. So being effective is doing the right things. And then being efficient is doing things right. But if you, if you, you, if you do something unimportant, well, it doesn't make it important. Does that make sense? So I actually build a lot of slack into my system. I just came back from effectively two weeks off of social media and computer and email. And I have periods of, I have at least five periods of two to three weeks just like that coming up. So on a macro level, you have macro and micro optimization. I spend a lot more time on the macro. So I'm, I'm looking at my entire 2017. I've blocked out these dark periods so that I can do deep work. And also just enjoy what it is that I'm building in my life for myself and the people I care about. Then you have the more micro, right? The quarterly goals, the monthly, the daily. And I, I think it is critically important to have breathing room in the system where you are not being bombarded with, with inputs, which is part of the reason why I do spend a lot of my mental focus scripting the first, say, one to three hours of each day. So that is important to me, and it's something that I'm constantly toying with, the boot-up sequence for each day, so to speak, where I can be non-reactive and say, this is a fairly typical routine for me, before lunch, and this is, of course, easier to do when you're self-employed, but, but it's not impossible to do when you're employed because I did it also. Before lunch, focusing on my most important to do and minimizing input, meaning text messages. So my phone is on airplane mode, email. I don't have a browser tab open Gmail, for instance. Email is not set up on my phone at all in terms of a mail client. And in that period of time, let's just call it from 9 to 12, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., focus on the most important to do. How do you de decide on the most important to do? It's either the thing that makes you most uncomfortable. That's a pretty good proxy. Or the question I like to ask is, which one of these, if done, will make all of the rest irrelevant or easier? And a, if, if those two don't do the trick, then the third would be, which one of these, if done, would leave me satisfied with my day? Like today, I've done next to nothing today, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I've, I just got home from Kauai, where I was with Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer, and some other people doing ice training and <laughs> all sorts of craziness. In something called XPT, just got back, spent most of the day walking my dog today and just thinking. Because if I if I I knew that if I jumped straight into the inbox, I would be immediately responding to everyone else's agenda for my time. So I know that's a bit long-winded in its answer, but the critique that productivity can veer very quickly into busyness and cramming more garbage and minutiae into every minute and every hour is a very fair criticism, which is why if people ask me for recommendations on time management and so on, I don't steer them to a lot of, say, newer literature, although some of it's okay and some of it's good, 
I'll generally point them to something like The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. It's old. It's stood the test of time. The principles are timeless. And I, I think that it is much more important to get the principles right in this book that is decades old than to figure out the latest and greatest app to download onto your smartphone. That's not going to make any type of difference that isn't incremental. Give me a couple of the basic takeaways from the effective executive. Well, I mean, it's really one message being beat into your head in a hundred different contexts, which is what you do is much more important than how you do anything. And the separation of the critical few from the trivial many, and then developing the practice and capacity to ruthlessly focus on the critical few, as opposed to the seemingly urgent, trivial many. And easier said than done, of course, which is why it's a collection, in many cases, of case studies as to how this can be applied and how to make decisions, how to face the onslaught of inbound and so on. But it's a, it's a slim volume. It's probably 120 guessing here. I have books that have a huge impact on me emotionally and otherwise, I'll say technically, if they have tactics and so on, in my living room, all facing out. So <laughs> I can see all of these books from where I'm sitting. <laughs> and the effective executive is right there. So I'm guessing based on the width of its spine that it's about 120 to 150 pages. What are the other books facing out? Other books facing out include Tribe by Sebastian Younger, Gratitude by Oliver Sacks, Less is More, which is an anthology of minimalist thinking, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, a short book on Tsume Shogi, which is a type of Japanese chess, effectively, The Dune by Frank Herbert, The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz, Zorba the Greek, and then I see spines. Those are the books that are currently face out. I like that. Um, I, I like that also there. Tell me how you decide a face out versus a spine. What, what are you denoting there, trying to do there? These are visual reminders of things I want to prioritize in my life. And they, they don't change all too often, but they change somewhat often. So bird by bird, I've read all these books, bird by bird would be rem reminding me to break down large projects or problems into small component parts. And I won't ruin the, the story of why it's called bird by bird. Everyone should read it, especially if they're a writer. Less is more. We were talking about the more, more, more pathology. <laughs> and I live in Silicon Valley where that is particularly pervasive. Uh, so less is more is just a reminder that in effect, prompting me to ask myself, what if everything were complete as is, you know, what if, and I spent a lot of time on what if questions, but like, what if everything were complete as is, how would that change what you're pursuing, what you're committing to and so on right now? Gratitude, Oliver Sacks, it, it used to be the last, the last lecture. I like to have a reminder of death and mortality, maybe a less morbid way to put it, in several places in my house, which is also just a, a course correct prompt. If I'm like, ah, maybe I should do this, maybe I should do this partnership, this deal, that or the other thing, and it comes down to a long pro and con list for the decision, number one, that should be an indicator. The answer is don't do it, but be a reminder that you could die at any minute <laughs> helps to 
act as a, a clarifying force for me. And it goes on. You know, what, what are your other death reminders? Uh, I have, uh, well, I have skulls in my house. I have a caribou skull with antlers about six feet to the left of me. There are books on warfare, like about face. Also in my living room to the left, I actually have a stack of this book about face, which was given to me by a podcast guest of mine named Jocko Willink, who's a just famed uh, retired Navy SEAL commander, also led all the West Coast training for the SEAL teams. And he, that's his favorite book. So he recommended that, and now I gift it to other people. So that is there. I have multiple skulls. I have more skulls downstairs. <laughs> I'm getting a very weird impression of your house right now. Yeah, yeah. It's not a mausoleum or a house of death. I have a bust of Seneca, so Seneca the Younger, in marble, which is on my kitchen countertop. And they don't need to be everywhere. They just need to be here and there. So I have a handful upstairs and a handful downstairs. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So there is a chapter in Tools of Titans with Kevin Kelly. Great sort of fascinating mind. And, and he had one of the, I don't know if I called a recommendation, but a practice that left me thinking for the longest in the book, which was that he keeps a countdown clock on his computer that mm -hmm. is tied to the actuarial lifespan for people like him. And so just every day, the number of days he plausibly has left on Earth are, are, are ticking down in front of him. Mm -hmm. And I read that. I thought, on the one hand, I really see the way that would help clarify and focus the mind. And on the other hand, that I am Jewish. I come out of the box with a deep fear of mortality. I'm like I'm like that kid who when he recognized right. I'm like that kid who when he recognized what death was, it was like three months of hell for my parents. And I don't quite know how I would long term react to seeing that tick down. I'm I'm curious what you think of that particular practice. I love it. And I, I know I, I, in fact, know a number of people who independently have ended up creating death clocks of different you types. An amazing social circle, I have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very uplifting because they are not prone to wasting time. They are prone to having fun, which is not the same as wasting time because they're aware that they're using time specifically for having fun. And 
the mortality ceases to to plan well for a good death, and that could be a, a multi-hour conversation in and of itself. Number one, just read the moral letters to Lucilius by Seneca, or you could read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I prefer Seneca, so you could look up anything. Letters from a Stoic, Tao of Seneca, there are a number of different options for digesting that. And to prepare for a good death, which takes into account not only yourself, but the people you care for, I think it's very, very important to develop a certain comfort level with death. And I'm sure you've heard stories. I've had this experience in my own extended family where people are so terrified of death that they never plan for it. And they, they don't do the, say, they don't get wills in place. They don't get any type of instruction in place for the worst case scenario, whether that's ending up on a ventilator, unable to communicate with your children, or dead. And when you have these memento mori, these reminders of death, it's a bit like, this might be a little out there, but Iocane powder in The Princess Bride. I don't know if you remember the Dread Pirate Robert. Uh, oh, I do. I rewatched uh, Princess right. Bride like three weeks ago. All right. So when you dose yourself in a, I think they would call it a hormetic way, in very low doses with something, like these memento mori, these reminders of death, death ceases in a way to have a grip on you. And then you are able to think more rationally and logically about the finite time that you have on this planet. And I think it allows you to take better care of yourself and better care of the people around you. If I try to schedule doing things that I fear in manageable doses, and there are different ways to overcome phobias, right, or fears, this would be systematic desensitization. There's flooding, which I'm not really big on, but this type of desensitization towards death, I think, could be really valuable for you. And for me, it's like, I, for instance, I didn't learn to swim until I was in my 30s. That's embarrassing for a, a number of different reasons, but I had to end up dosing myself almost in a medicinal vaccination type of way so that I could become more comfortable swimming, and now I swim to relax. But I do think it's not something that you can think your way in or out of. It's it's really just a process of exposure. One of the things I find fascinating about about this particular conversation about death, but I think also about the the whole kinds of practices and programs we're talking about here, is that they are ways of resting. Control may not be exactly the right word, but something close to control, a measure of agency from life, which is often a pretty out of control thing. And so I'm curious about periods in your life when you didn't have that. You've talked in the past about having a pretty serious bout of Lyme disease where, where you really mm-hmm. lost control of your body for a while. And I'm curious how that changed you. What did you what did you learn or take away from that experience? The biggest takeaway was health number one, making health number one really is a binary decision. If you say my health is number one, but you compromise 20% of the time, like, ah, but that phone call is really important. And I know I only got five hours of sleep, but I'm not going to cancel the call. I'm going to do the call. You're going to compromise exactly when it's most important not to compromise. So health number one literally means everything else comes second or lower. 
So if your health is number one, it means obligations to business come far below it, obligations to family, far below it, obligations to everything except for caring for your physical self and improving your physical state come second. And it's actually very challenging to Give do me a that. couple examples of the, the sort of trade-offs you've had to make there. Saying no to incredible invitations to travel places, to do things that under normal health conditions I would want to take advantage of. Getting flown to private islands and all sorts of silly stuff like that that is nonetheless fun. I've had to say no to hugely potentially lucrative business deals because I knew how taxing it would be on me physically. And my future at that point, cognitively and otherwise, was very uncertain. I mean, the, the symptoms, just as a, as a bit of background and context, first, I would say most people who think they have Lyme disease don't have Lyme disease. And they go shopping for doctors and diagnoses until they get someone who will say, yes, you have Lyme disease. Most people who think they have Lyme disease don't have Lyme disease. On Eastern Long Island, and there are a couple of other places, certainly upstate New York, Connecticut, which is where... Lyme, Lyme, Connecticut, uh, is the namesake of Lyme disease. And a few other places, there's such a high density of black-legged ticks and other ticks that, uh, and the breeding cycles are now overlapped due to climate change, that you can contract Lyme disease very, very easily. So where I grew up on Eastern Long Island, it's very, very common. Almost everyone in my family has had Lyme, and I pulled six ticks, embedded ticks, out of myself in the span of two days. And I ignored the onset of symptoms because I didn't have the bullseye rash. And I erroneously thought, as many locals where I live do, that if you don't get the bullseye rash, you don't have Lyme. And in about 20%, I want to say, of the cases, you're dermatologically asymptomatic. So I was screwed. And I ended up so... The symptoms got so bad that I was slurring my speech. I couldn't remember friends' names. And it took me five to 10 minutes to get out of bed because my knees were so swollen. And uh, so in that state, I didn't know how I was going to feel a week later, much less six months later. Was it going to get worse? Was it going to get better? So I said no to effectively everything. Every type of commitment that that forced me to look at a calendar in the future resulted in the answer no. And that's that's very challenging to do in practice. I think conceptually it's easy for people on, say, December 31st or Jan 1 to say, you know what? This year I'm going to say no to more things. And health is going to be number one. But when you translate that into day-to-day behavior and decisions, it's actually very, very challenging. So that was, that was an ex- ex- extraordinarily tough period for me. And after the normal rounds of antibiotics, which I do think are important, doxycycline and so on, the intervention that ended up, as far as I can tell, eradicating the symptoms better than anything else was going into an extended period on the ketogenic diet. And uh, that was that was quite a, a revelation for me and has been for a number of my friends who are properly diagnosed with Lyme disease. Do you think of yourself as, as spiritual? Mm, I don't. To come back to our uh, most, most problems in relationships or problems of language, well, you know what? Let me take a step back. I don't use that word because it's used in so many ways in so many contexts that I don't know what it means. But if you can define it for me, I can tell you if I am or not. But I would not generally use that word. Do you think about and engage with the idea routinely that there is more going on 
in and around our lives than we can sense or explain. Oh, yeah, 100%. So by that definition, I'm very, very spiritual. (laughs) By that definition, without any deities, without the G word, without all that stuff, yes, I've had way too many firsthand experiences and observed way too many things directly to think that we have it all figured out. There's without question a lot more going on <laughs> than we can than we than we can track or measure or figure out at the moment. What are some of the the experiences that have shaken your your sense of materialism? Uh now I should I should say before we get into crazy land, which we are about to before we I get love to, crazy land. All right. So before we get into crazy land, I should say that what I'm about to describe a could be just a hallucination of my imagination. B, although I don't think it is B quite possibly will be explained using the scientific method at some point. We just don't currently have the incentive or the capability or both to explore this. So a lot of a lot of my conviction here, eh, conviction is a strong word. Curiosity here relates to experiences I've had either while using psychedelics in very controlled settings or observing other people using psychedelics, which I've done sober on many occasions. And I've seen some very, very, very odd things. <laughs> For instance. I have seen people sing in lockstep with, say, uh, an organizer of one of these sessions in languages that they don't speak. Uh, and this is also corroborated by, by a pregnant woman who was there who was certainly not taking anything, and she saw the exact same thing. So this was in a group of five or six people. And could my mind be playing tricks on me because I was – for lack of a better term, tripping my face off, for sure, 100%. But these were two very infrequently spoken indigenous languages from Central and South America. And my, this friend of mine I've known for more than a decade was singing in lockstep, word for word, with the person who was leading it. And I don't know how to explain that. I really don't. There may be a good way to explain it. I don't know how to explain it. And there are dozens of other examples like that that I could bring up. And the, the Occam's razor explanation would be, dude, you're on psychedelics. You're just hallucinating. <laughs> and all of that is illusion. But the fact that in almost every case, there were also sober people who observed the exact same phenomenon leads me to think there's just more to the story than some folks would like to believe. I think that humans are, and history certainly proves this out over and over and over again, epistemologically arrogant. We think we know more than we know. And one of my metrics for a good doctor is how often they say this could be wrong or we don't know. And in fact, good doctors will jokingly often say, 50% of what we know is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. We really are only scratching the surface of understanding the environment in which we live, much less ourselves. I mean, try to find a doctor who can explain why we sleep, (laughs) the function of sleep. 
Isn't the isn't the it, famous it, line that the only reason we know for sleeping is that we get sleepy? <laughs> There's a famous right. sleep doctor who said that. Yeah, and uh, it, it's and there's some you know there's some when people hear stories of these psychedelic experiences there's a often a very collective eye roll but you could you can do some thought experiments that make it seem perhaps a little less crazy and there are many ways to go about it but I mean for instance there there are many people who don't remember their dreams you couldn't give them a million dollars and have them accurately recall what they dreamt let's say in two hands of a free uh, two pages of freehand prose. Well, if if there were only, say, five people on the planet who could recall their dreams and other people didn't believe dreaming existed, it would seem completely psychotic. It would com- seem a completely psychotic assertion. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was flying over the hillside and then this happened and then this character from Dumb and Dumber jumped out and made me a pizza. And it's like it would just you would get locked up. So there's there's certainly no shortage of unexplained phenomena out there. And that applies to, say, astrophysics. It applies to daily life. It applies to all sorts of things. I mean, I, it's there's a lot more happening than we've figured out for sure. And I, I, I that that's an assertion I feel very comfortable with. So you gave you gave a fascinating example here, but I want to generalize it out a little bit because I think that a lot of people, when they hear this idea that someone took psychedelics and had a spiritual experience, they think, well, look, you might have felt what you felt, but we can explain this totally normally. You know, you, you ate the psilocybin or, or the LSD. It mimicked serotonin in your brain, but it wasn't serotonin. Things flooded around. Weird connections were made, and, and you saw a lot of colors. What you're saying is, in at least one case, you saw people do things that did not seem explicable mm-hmm. from that mechanism. What are the other dimensions of proof that, not proof, that may not be the right word, but the other suggestive dimensions that that you've seen on psychedelics, the things that feel like they are beyond you just being shocked at what your own consciousness can do. I made the the preface with going to crazy town. It's very difficult to describe a psychedelic experience to someone who hasn't had a moderate to high dose psychedelic experience in a sense to the person who hasn't had the experience, no words will suffice. And to the person who has had the experience, no words are necessary. (laughs) It's one of those. And you could certainly apply that to say sneezing or, or having an orgasm. Like if you've never had a sneeze or an orgasm and you try to describe what it feels like, I mean, in, very incomplete at best, but I'll, I, I have never thought yeah. of how hard it would be to describe a sneeze until this moment. I'm a <laughs> I am a professional writer and communicator. I don't think I would. I don't think I would even know where to begin. It'd be very, very, very hard. It's like you expel a tickle out from your inside your head. Yeah, right. Right. So psychedelics, psychedelics provide in a proper setting with proper supervision and a sufficient dose an opportunity in most cases to leave your ego behind. And what I mean by that is your sense of self can be cleaved off away from the observer. So you can actually take a third party vantage point in looking at what you consider Ezra. And you can actually revisit, say, good or traumatic experiences in your past that you couldn't properly contextualize, say, as a child. 
and make sense of them so that they in some way aid you or at the very least don't handicap you in your adult life. And I know that sounds very abstract and it is, but the practical implications are, for instance, after some of these experiences, I had a lot of anger and have had a lot of anger issues for my entire adolescent and adult life. And after two days of very structured use, I came away from it. It was a very difficult experience for people who are thinking, yeah, let me go on the dark web and order some ayahuasca to make it home in my slow cooker. I would not recommend. And I had full body. <laughs> yeah. You want to use a pressure cooker for that. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I, <laughs> I had uh, grandma seizures, full body seizures for about two and a half hours on a rug and ended up with rug burns all over my face, hands and feet at in the second night of that two day experience. I vowed never to do it again, that it was too dangerous. And I, I thought maybe I'd fried my motherboard and done permanent damage. And what I noticed about two weeks later is that I would say 90% of the anger issues that have surfaced as very knee-jerk responses to predictable triggers and cues were absent. They were just gone. And that was probably close to four years ago. And those responses, those loops have not returned, right? So can I explain how that happened? No. Do I know that it happened? Yes. I mean, to the extent that people who haven't seen me in close friends who haven't seen me in multiple years would meet me and within 15 or 30 minutes, be like, dude, what have you been doing? Because you are a completely different human being. <laughs> I, I mean, that noticeable it was not a subtle change. And that, that's not a guaranteed outcome for any of these things. And people can and do die, by the way, when they're cavalier about using these substances or use them in unsupervised settings, etc. But I've taken almost all of my energy that I was diverting into startups and capital for that matter, and redirected that into funding scientific studies at places like Johns Hopkins, UCSF, related to very, very uh, credible, high-level, sophisticated clinical research of compounds like psilocybin, for instance, uh, because I think that it is it is just a tragedy and incredibly, incredibly unproductive that these compounds have been scheduled in such a way to put them in the same class with the same punishments as, say, heroin or cocaine, and that these should be available to doctors or qualified professionals who can administer these things to, say, addicts. For opiate addiction, alcoholism, nicotine addiction, these compounds have absolutely profound and dramatic applications. At least that's 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 my belief based on current data. And I want more good science to be done. Uh, so I'm fascinated by this. We've covered this issue a bit at Vox and, and Herman Lopez, one of our, our writers, looked at 50 studies of mm -hmm. what psychedelics, particularly LSD and, and psilocybin, seem promising to, to treat. And, and it's worth saying a lot of these studies, as I think you imply, they're not great. They're very low yep. sample sizes. They have a lot of methodological failures. But they are certainly, from my reading, they seem more than good enough to make one want to explore it. 
they seem yeah. more than good enough oh, yeah. to say, well, why don't we do some actually good studies and, and see where that gets us? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, there's uh, and it's the the reason or one of the reasons that more good science needs to be done and hasn't been done is that when you have, well, let's take if you have, say, LSD or psilocybin in the same class as heroin or cocaine, if you are a scientist, let's just say you're at I'm making this up. You're at you're at uh, Stanford or maybe not Stanford, like UC Irvine, and you decide you want to do a study where you administer cocaine or heroin to healthy human subjects. <laughs> well, you're going to have a number of challenges. A, you're going to have to get IRB approval, which is the uh, review board approval to administer what are thought of as dangerous drugs with no known medical application and high addictive potential to healthy subjects. That's going to be very, very challenging, probably won't get approved. If that gets approved, and I might be going slightly out of order here, but you're going to have to get DEA approval and then procure legally heroin or cocaine. This is very, very, very time intensive, and it's also very capital intensive, which is why for the last several decades, most psychedelic studies have very small sample sizes. They might have 10 or 15 subjects because it could be on the order of thousands of dollars per subject for an amount of psilocybin that is represented by a $50 purchase of mushroom chocolates on the street. But you can't buy mushrooms on the street and use them in a <laughs> standardized study of psilocybin. So instead, going through the proper channels, it costs several thousand dollars per person, and scientists are capital constrained. So there are a lot of issues that can and I think will be resolved in the next five to 10 years. So I'm working with a number of groups. The Hefter Institute is one of them. MAPS is doing some interesting work. And some very, very good senior researchers uh, like Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins, who I think can really explore these substances in a way that shows the potential benefits and potential risks and mechanisms of action of them, which, uh, which is very exciting. It's very, very exciting to me. So I think it's fascinating to, to imagine the future. And, and again, we don't know how these studies would turn out, but the future where they turn out to be very powerful, very powerful treatments for depression or very powerful treatments for addiction. And we look back and think, we had these compounds. They were sitting all around. We knew what they were. We you know, at least had a beginning of knowing how they worked. And, and we withheld these treatments from, from people for not, for not a great reason. And, and it leads me to a question I wanted to ask you, putting the psychedelic question aside, because I, I think where you are on that, we've sort of run through. What do you think we are likely to be proven ethically wrong about in this time in the future? What do you think our descendants will look back on us and say, well, what the hell were they doing? That's terrible. <laughs> well, we talked about factory farming when I had you on my podcast. We don't have to. We don't have to spend a ton of time on that. I, I, I certainly <laughs> think people on this broadcast have heard my soapbox on factory farming. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it I can be that, it can be premised. Yeah, I think I think that I think that is is pretty self explanatory. Ethics are tough. Ethics and morality are are very tricky areas. Could you could you expand on your question? Yeah, maybe uh, give I'd be happy an, to do so. Maybe give me an example. Yeah, let me separate two different kinds of things. There is something where we are just wrong, 
right? So there could be something where we believe something is X and instead it's Y. And, and in the mm-hmm. future, people figure that out. And, and they look back and they say, oh, those poor bastards, right? Mm-hmm. It turned out you had aspirin sitting around you all the time and it was fine. Or it turned out that you could power <laughs> spaceships using ferns, um, right. whatever that might be. I'm not talking about something where a scientific discovery upends the state of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm saying something like, I mean, I think the canonical example is we look back and we don't have to look back that far, right? It was 1945, 1950. You had people in America who believed segregation was right. They morally thought it was a, a, an appropriate good thing. And, and I think there are very few people like that left. Uh, and you know, you go back for that. You have slavery and people believe that was right. Uh, we talked about factory farming. I think that's something where that is not going to look ethically defensible we will have not been confused about what it was. It's not that we're going to suddenly discover that pigs can feel pain or that chickens don't enjoy having their, their wings clipped. It's that the what we believe as a society is decent is going to change. So I'm curious if there are other things out there that look like that to you that, that, that you look at and you think, you know what, there are folks on both sides of this debate right now and a lot of us, a lot of them are getting it wrong. Or maybe you just think there's a good chance that one day we, people will look back and say we got that one wrong. Well, yeah, I'll take a stab at it. And this is, I feel like I've been using that phrase a lot. I've been taking a lot of stabs today. Um, <laughs> These questions are lying bloodied, gutted all over the floor. <laughs> so the scientific is immediately where my head goes. And I know you told me not to go there, so I won't. But the reason my head goes there is because it becomes an objective debate or it veers more towards the objective. The subjective, uh, and we could debate this as well, certainly, but the, the bifurcation of right and wrong with those words, I think, is where many debates start and never get resolved. So what I will say is, if I were to flip it around, so not things that we think are perfectly acceptable now that we will 10 years from now look at and go, oh my God, how did we think that was okay? I'll actually bring it back to when you were asking me about relationships. I think that we will see the pendulum swing back in some respects in intimate relationships and this isn't necessarily even in heteronormative relationships. I think you will you will and do observe this in many different types of, of intimate relationships, homosexual, uh, heteronormative, or otherwise. That right now there seems to be a negative view of, say, gender specific polarity. And what I mean, what I mean by that is what I've if I were to write about relationships, this is also how I would immediately get myself in trouble. So I probably shouldn't. But but what I've observed in the relationships that seem to work for a long period of time, and I'm talking about life partners of different types, is that for for sexual attraction to remain as a fuel for the bumps in the road there's generally a a polarity required. And what I mean by that is imagine, if you will, a, a spectrum. It's a horizontal line that represents a spectrum. On one hand, uh, you have at the very end 
masculine traits. And I, let's just for the time being, assume that people kind of get what that means. So we don't have to get into it. All right. We're all, we're all just talking about Tom Selleck. Yeah, we're all talking. Yeah. Tom Selleck, Burt Reynolds. You got it. So hundred <laughs> percent. Well, I, well, actually a hundred percent masculine would be like, Og the caveman, <laughs> you know, raping and pillaging, right? So that's a hundred percent. And then you have a hundred percent feminine characteristics on the opposite end. Uh, so the, the very stereotypical sort of yin yang. Now, as you get into the center, if you were, were to go dead center, that's 50, 50, 50% feminine, 50% masculine characteristics, sort of perfect androgyny in the middle. And as you move out in one direction or the other, let's say that there's a person who is 60%, I'm making this up, right? But 60% well, let's take a more extreme example. 70% masculine characteristics, 30% feminine characteristics. That person will stand a higher chance of long-term relationship success, all other things being equal, if they are paired with someone who is equidistant from that androgyny center. In other words, someone who is 70% female, uh, feminine characteristics, 30% masculine characteristics. And I've spent a lot of time studying relationships that have worked. And that is one of the few constants, and there are always exceptions, but more times than not, like like 90 plus percent of the time, I find that people are equidistant from this perfect balance point of 50-50. And that is not very popular conversation to have these days. If uh, I think that we confuse equal rights with people being biologically the same and having different preferences in many cases, different strengths and weaknesses perhaps. And that is a dangerous, dangerous conversation to have right now. So let me let me just ask so I understand the underlying concept. Does that mean that somebody who's 49, 51 should ideally be with somebody who's 51, 49? Uh, hypothetically, yeah, it does. So, I mean, so, I, I, I don't know how you'd thin slice it. And again, this is a this is a conceptual framework. It's not like I can have somebody. Well, maybe I could figure out a way to do it. That have somebody fill out a hundred question, <laughs> self analysis, and be like, "Yep, as I thought." You're but but the reason the reason I the reason I ask the question just to, to because I, I'm trying to understand the, the the underlying idea is that there's a version of this where what you're saying is that people want a partner, um, whether that partner is same sex or, or non same sex, who is quite far from them, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that we have overstated how much folks want a want someone who is really a lot like them. And, mm-hmm. and Tyler Cohen, who's not, I think, making exactly this construct at all, but he, he has an interesting argument in his new book uh, that we're getting too good at matching. We're just, we are, we are partnering with people who are exactly like us. And, and you're extending that argument maybe to masculine feminine behaviors for, for lack of a better term. But then I don't think that would imply the 49-51-51-49, right? That it, it seems to me that there's one version of it says someone who's 49-51 still wants somebody who's 80-20. That what you're saying is actually people are more attracted to the extremes than, for lack of a, again, for lack of a better term, political correctness will allow us to Oh, I'm show. not saying that they're more attracted to them. Okay. I'm saying that from what I've observed, and again, this is not a Tim opinion thing. This is a Tim observation thing related to the, the say 10 year plus successful life partners that I have 
just observed and studied and interviewed just for myself, they may not start off. In fact, a lot of the conversations start off with when I first met so-and-so, I didn't want anything to do with them. Or when I first met so-and-so, I didn't like them. It's not this love at first sight thing. But when you look at those who have stood the test of time, they tend to have equal polarity from the center of this, this hypothetical 50-50 of perfectly split characteristics. So there you have it. I mean, but tell, tell me what your tell me what your hypothesis is of the mechanism there. What it what is it putting aside the putting aside the language of polarity? What do you think it is that people want? Why do you think those things work better? Those matches work better. I don't have a a, a good thought through plausible mechanistic explanation for it, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not having the explanation. I mean, there could be if there could be a a pheromone, very straightforward sort of biological uh, attraction component. There could be many different, and there probably are many different factors that interplay to, to create this. If it is in fact a thing, right? I'm basing it on people I've random, randomly bumped into over the last 10 years. Has this observation mean, changed who you look for? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it has in, in many respects. For instance, it's it's very hard to have two alphas in the same household. <laughs> I think that much, <laughs> that much. I think that's generally hard to dispute. I mean, at least two people who are the alpha at home, and that doesn't mean the male is always the alpha. I mean, you certainly, uh, I, I've seen cases where it's been the opposite, uh, which can sometimes work. Very often, doesn't. But I need a compliment. So the, 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 and I haven't read his latest book, but Tyler Cohen talks, talking about overmatching. If you're matching on similarities, you're not necessarily going to get the compliment. And I am looking for someone who, who would help me to create a whole and harmonious life, not someone who is going to overlap with me on 99 things out of a hundred. And I do think that if you share the same values on sort of core components of your life, meaning that what you will stand up for, accept, reject, et cetera, et cetera, morally, ethically, and how you prioritize. If those are the same, those five things, you can have completely different hobbies. You can read completely different books. You can, you can be a mismatch on many of those surface level micro elements. If the macro values and compass are calibrated the same way. But again, I mean, this is kind of pissing into the wind in the sense that it's, it's all conjecture. I mean, this is where most relationship books end up. And then I always want to ask, right. And I mean, anybody would want to ask, like, well, what's, what's the evidence? What's the, what are the data? And that's usually where you end up with a blank space instead of a good answer. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess 
as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there is no way that that Israel should be able to participate. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. So let me then go to uh, away from relationships you've observed and towards people. And you, you have a question you ask on your podcast that I always really enjoy where you ask people to name someone they think is successful. And rather than ask you that, I'd like to know who's the person that, that you've met either through your podcast or just in your travels who when you're around them, you feel that there is just something very fundamental they have figured out about life, that, that they seem to you like a model, however you define that, for how to live. I think Josh Waitzkin, for me, comes to mind. Josh Waitzkin is, was the basis for searching for Bobby Fischer, both the book and the movie. He's considered a chess prodigy, but has also applied his learning framework. There's a great book called The Art of Learning, but he's applied his learning framework to become a world champion in Tai Chi push hands, to become the first black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu under a phenom, arguably the best grappler who ever lived, Marcelo Garcia, and now he's tackling paddle surfing. Josh has two young kids. He has, as we speak, a very close relationship with his wife, extremely close relationship with his kids. He's a good dad. He is never rushed. He is never overbooked. He is created. He is the master. He is perhaps the greatest master I have met. Uh, although Derek Sivers would also be in that category, at creating slack, at creating space so that he can do very, very deep work. He is not bombarded by email. He is not on social media. He never does interviews except for my podcast because we've known each other for so long. And he, I think, has figured out a lot of life and really done an incredible amount of introspective work to figure it out. It's it's he didn't just fall into it. it. This isn't Josh accidentally having the life that he wants. He's been very methodical in trying to architect it with his wife. And, and it's interesting to me because I've and I've heard your discussions with him and they're fascinating. And something that comes up, it seems to me, a lot in in your talks with him is the places in which he has given up opportunities to be bigger, to be more of a brand, to be more successful, to have more social reach, to however you might want to define it. Occupational success, I think, is classically defined in order to have more space in his life. I mean, it's interesting that you go to him immediately because he seems like someone who's done a very good job figuring out what kinds of success would not make him happy and walling oh, yeah. himself off from it in a way that I think a lot of people who are privileged to have those decisions to make – often have trouble making the right ones for their for their own happiness. And I think Josh, in a sense, benefited from having a very early crisis related to overexposure. And specifically, 
I mean, when he was, I want to say 14 or 15, still competing in chess, he very quickly, once the movie came out and he had, and there was so much attention on Josh, he very quickly became unable to compete because there were fans, there were girls who wanted to talk to him at the, at the competitions. He couldn't, he couldn't concentrate and focus the way he wanted to concentrate and focus. And it wasn't enjoyable for him. He did not enjoy it at all. So he had, he had a very early taste of what it felt like, not in theory, not as a kid looking at a rock star on a poster on your wall and wanting to be that person, but in a, in a very tangible sense of having his life turned upside down because he's gone from very private person to being very publicly exposed. And that gave him the opportunity to realize and decide early on that's not what he wanted. He is one of the most private people I know and we are I mean, we we are constantly in contact. We text for in the same country probably a few times a week and have a very very close relationship. But he he is really good at thinking exponentially and not incrementally. So in other words, where many people make mistakes of say they will choose an option, make a decision based on a pro and con list that will give them 10% more annual income the next year. Josh would rather take, say, three months of no income to figure out how he can make 10x what he made the year before while cutting the number of clients he works with from, say, 20 to 5. And that is a challenging problem. It is not the type of question most people would ask because it seems impossible at the outset but he will create the space to work on that and to ultimately devise different approaches or tests that he can take. And that is how he's able to seemingly opt out of the external world while still making these quantum leaps in his personal and professional life. That's probably a good segue actually into your podcast a bit, which I've listened to for a long time. It's, and I'll say one of the inspirations for, for this podcast, I enjoyed it so much. I thought, oh, I should try to make my hobby more work for myself and, and start my own, <laughs> uh, which is my general attitude towards life. And so I'm, I'm curious because you have a very, I think, nice, easy style with it. What do you think, whether, whether in yours or in others you listen to, just what do you think makes a good podcast? What makes a good podcast, if we're talking about long form interview. Yeah. Let, let's talk podcast. about interview podcasts. If we're talking about long form interview podcasts. What makes a good interview for me is an, an interviewer who is first and foremost, personally curious about the person they're interviewing. Secondly, who's good at follow up questions. And third, who lets their interviewee talk. There are some great podcasts out there that sometimes tend, they lean into the over-talking quite a bit and it becomes less interesting in some of those, in some of those instances. But for me, I think it is making the content on some level entertaining. So having a handful of stories in the conversation because we're, we're storytelling machines both for ingestion and production. Those are huge. That's, that's homo sapiens right there. So I, I think you need a few stories as connected tissue to hold the entire, the, the, the whole of the interview together. 
And then for my podcast, for me, since every interview I do is generally intensely personal in some sense, I want specifics. I want details. I want something that I can use or test or look up or read as soon as I stop listening to the interview or the next day. And if you have those ingredients and you listen to your recordings and review your transcripts and have other people review your transcripts early on, for instance, I ended up getting in touch with one of the, if not the lead researcher for inside the actor studio. And I paid him for his time to look through, I want to say five or somewhere between five and 10 of my transcripts to identify where I could improve things. And it was really eye-opening because he noted, I did this with Cal Fussman as well, who was on my podcast, who wrote the What I Learned column for Esquire magazine for decades. And he's interviewed everybody. You know, Where am I asking questions out of order in your mind? Where am I missing follow-up opportunities? Where am I not letting silence do the work when I'm jumping in too quickly to save the interviewee when they don't need to be saved? They just need an extra 10 seconds to think about it which is an eternity of silence in audio. These are the types of things that I think about. And the podcast for me has been a great tool for becoming a better thinker, coming back to the language. When you listen to yourself or read yourself and, you're, and you notice, oh my God, I say um or ah, or put another way, like every other paragraph, I need to fix that. You are improving your thinking in doing that. What are in a tangible way, a couple of ways that you interview differently now from a couple of years ago? Compared to a few years ago, I'd say my style now, my approach is, has evolved in so much as I tend to A, veer away from scripts as much as needed. So if I have 30 questions I'd like to get through. If I only get through three of those and then it comes up, let's say, as it did with Margaret Cho, known, best known as a comedian that we want, or even say Andrew Zimmer, an even better example, chef, thought of as a chef, bizarre foods. And we start talking about drug addiction and alcoholism. That's the conversation. That becomes the conversation and all those other questions go away. So that'd be point one. Point two is Opening the conversation, I will sometimes open chronologically, tell us about your childhood, where you grew up, but I will also very often open with something that is out of left field, but of great interest to them. So something that they might give a TED Talk on that other people aren't aware of. So for Edward Norton, it might be surfing. And I do that very deliberately to not, to not encourage them to go on autopilot. I don't want them to be able to just click play and get the same 20 sound bites that they've used in every bit of media they've ever done. I also will often think of the podcast episode in thirds now or quarters. If it's in thirds, it's generally random questions that I want to ask. First third, second third, say fan questions or upvoted questions from my audience. And then the last third rapid fire questions, which I've also honed over time. So there's certain questions that I've filtered and tested to get good responses. And by good, I mean everything that we just talked about in terms of what makes a good podcast episode. And 
I've made replacements. So rather than say, do you have any favorite books? First of all, it's a yes, no question. Second of all, what I've observed in that question is you get a, a recency effect. People will generally just come up with a, either a book that they read in the last few years that was good or a book that they think they should really like. <laughs> this is where the, the war and pieces come up or the uh, Edward Tufty is that his last name, books come up and so on. These books that are always on bookshelves that no one, have, no one has ever read. Instead of that, if I ask, if I want to narrow the, the sort of search query, you can ask, what books have you gifted the most to other people? And you almost always get back a very specific finite list of two to five books from almost every guest. Uh, so I've, I've honed those over time. I've also um, omitted questions that I realize put people on the defense because it's not the point of my podcast. It's not hardball. My, my podcast is really about teasing out habits and routines and specifics for people who are the best at what they do. I used to ask, for instance, and I still ask this question, but who's the first person who comes to mind when you think of the word success, when you hear the word success? Okay. Very specific wording. That sometimes gets a good answer. It very frequently gets a non-answer like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, let's just say, where it's, it's a reflexive answer. So Derek Sivers suggested that I should ask people, when you hear the word successful, who's the third person who comes to mind? <laughs> and you get a better <laughs> answer, which actually there's something to it. But after that, I used to ask, because I, I, I don't know how this came up, but I used to ask, when you hear the word punchable, who's the first person <laughs> who comes to mind? And there, there are two problems with that. A, most people aren't going to want to give an answer, so they'll tap dance around it, and it'll put them on the defense. They will, they will shut down. It will take them out of any flow that they had. Second is that it, it takes us, if they do answer us, it takes us into negative emotional territory that generally is not going to have any tactic or takeaway associated with it. So over time, I've tested these questions. And every once in a while, I'll slip new questions into the rotation. And if they work really well, like a question that I was asked by Chris Young in Seattle, who's an amazing chef with a company called Chef Steps, and he asked me, what is something absurd that you love doing? And I started using that question in the last two or three recordings that I've done, and it, it's produced fantastic answers. So that is, that's a question that's, that's probably going to stick in the rotation. I'll say, when you just asked that question about Punchable, I was astonished because somebody came to mind, and then I felt terrible about it. <laughs> I had, I had such a, just a strong – I'm not telling you. <laughs> but somebody like literally came out like, wait, what kind of person am I that I actually have? If you say, like, who would you like to punch? I actually have a, a person in mind. That's terrible. Well, I will say there was – I asked that question probably 25 times, and I was like, you know what? I need to get rid of this question. Because it's 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 not performing. This is this is a like a D plus question. And then I asked Tony Robbins in our first interview, <laughs> and he said, "Well, I'm not sure if I'd say punch, but let me tell you a story about meeting President Obama." And I was like, "Oh my God! All of this waiting, all of these bad answers, <laughs> just for this one moment of redemption." And he went on for about like ten or fifteen minutes. It was incredible. So that was point uh, is he punched President Obama. Well, he said probably shake uh, at the end <laughs> of it, but it was a great story. It was a really, really good story. But that, that was effectively when I retired the question. I was like, okay, I finally got a good answer. Now I'm going to retire the question. 
So it's funny because here at the end, I'm actually going to do the most gimmicky, crummy thing and turn some of your very excellent ending questions on you. But before I had one that I actually wanted to ask you, which is related to your absurd thing question, which is what do you do regularly that you're not good at? And I don't mean something you just tried for the first time. I mean, what is something that you do when you come back to that you are just not naturally skilled at, but you love and and, and are either committed to or addicted to? Uh, right now, it's jumping ropes. <laughs> I'm trying to... Uh, I'm not trying. I am strengthening my feet and lower legs. I've realized that I've, I've spent a lot of time strengthening my upper legs and hips and so on, but that to do a lot of what I want to do, ski at a higher level, for instance, acro yoga at a higher level, I need stronger lower legs and stronger feet specifically. And I'm using a slant board and other tools, but jumping rope, for whatever reason, I'm just terrible at jumping rope. And I have very, very poor calf endurance, might be related to my Achilles. So jumping rope, Right now, I, I did some jump rope this morning. Going to be traveling with a jump rope when I leave two days from now for two weeks of travel. Easy to travel with, great portable form of exercise. So I am, I'm committed to getting better at jumping ropes at the moment. I like that. All right, so here, here are some of your questions back at you. Um, and and I've, I want to be very clear, I take no credit for any of these. Uh, <laughs> what's the last $100 purchase you made that, or $100 or less that really improved your life? Last $100 or less purchase that I made that dramatically improved my life would be the, I think it's Freo, F-R-E-O, slant board. It's a wobble board uh, intended for single foot use for strengthening ankles and feet, designed by a guy named Eric Orton, who became famous from a book called Born to Run. He was the primary coach or one of the primary coaches in that book. So for uh, it's it's very small. You can travel with it very easily, and for less than a hundred dollars, I think it's forty dollars along those lines. That would be that would be my answer. You seem to have just from what I can gather, just a lot of strange workout equipment. Is that do, <laughs> do. do you have some I room do. in your I, house that is just full of? If I walked into it, it would just look like a small torture chamber, and it's just full of balls you step on and wobble have, boards and I have a things where you garage. hang upside down by your feet. Yeah, I have a two-car garage that I converted into a gym slash torture chamber that has all sorts of odd implements and tools, just just about everything you can imagine. When you you were a kid, you did wrestling, right? I did. I wrestled what kind? For a very long, very long time. Uh, did collegiate wrestling and also off-season freestyle wrestling. I did a little bit of Greco-Roman non-competitively, just in training in college, but mostly collegiate and then uh, freestyle off-season. What weight class were you? I was 152 pounds and effectively the same size that I am right now. So I would cut from my senior year, I would cut from 178 to 152 twice a week to compete. That's the most horrifying thing I've ever heard of a high school student doing. Yeah, yeah it's terrible. Don't do it. Bad idea. How, did, how did you get into doing serious weight cutting in, in high school? That's not a norm. Uh, I mean, I wrestled in high school and I don't remember there being a lot of that. Yeah, it, there were. It depends on the wrestling program. In my wrestling program, the kids took it very seriously, and I realized that I had physiological and technical weaknesses that I could overcome or compensate for by getting really, really good at weight cutting. So uh, that was one of my competitive advantages 
unfortunately for me, which uh, led me to getting very, very familiar with the human body and potassium sparing diuretics and how the kidneys function and all of these sodium potassium pumps and so on, uh, which later really, I should say, formed the foundation of physical experimentation that later led to everything else, including the four-hour body. So it started so, with the weight, weight cutting. Oh, that's so interesting. So weight cutting wrestling had this ultimately very important effect on, on, on your whole life. Yeah, yeah, it did. It's funny because my uh, I wrestled in high school and I was extreme I was extremely good at when I was a heavyweight. Uh, I weighed 220 and I wrestled guys who were a lot bigger and I was really good in that weight class for whatever reason. And then I lost a bunch of weight and went down to 189s, 171s and had no idea how to wrestle actually fast people. <laughs> and like that was the end of my wrestling career. <laughs> yeah, the closer you get to that sort of 130 or high school, you know, that like 135 170 range, you start getting up towards the middle of the bell curve and things get really unpleasant and difficult really fast. <laughs> All right. What is some advice you would give your 30-year-old self? And then I have a meta question about this question. Yeah, I would reinforce some advice that I got when I was about 14, which was you're the average of the five people you associate with most. I would really beat that into my 30-year-old head. At 30, I think I was doing a pretty good job. I would, pro I would say my 20-year-old self, I would hammer that into more. You know, I've heard a bunch of people on your podcast answer this question, and, and I'd say that half of them, at least, answer with some version of, you should enjoy it. Yeah. That you should slow down, you should calm down, you should enjoy it. And, and I give that a lot of thought because I think that I could probably stand to take that advice. And it's made me wonder a little bit whether or not people think of advice wrong because somebody like just like sitting down and taking by the shoulders and saying to slow down and enjoy it and don't worry about things so much and it's all going to be okay. Advice is very hard to take. And so I'm, I'm curious actually related to that how you think about what makes good or bad advice because that question made me realize that a lot of people, what they want is when they hear advice, they think of what is the right end state as opposed to what might get somebody there. Yeah, good good advice for me always provides a context or an example. So enjoy it as a maxim. Slow down, enjoy it. Isn't that helpful? A more actionable, helpful way to give that advice would be slow down, enjoy it, when I was your age, let me tell you a story about how I ran my business. A, B, and C happened, and then I realized slow down and enjoy was important, and I did X. It's based on their personal experience coming from someone that you respect or aspire to be like. So the person who gives the advice, in terms of what impact advice will have, the messenger is just as important as the message. And I, I see this all the time where someone's been fighting with their spouse to say, try change their diet for 20 years. And then I tell them the exact same thing with slightly different words on a podcast. And then they change it and the spouse is like, what the fuck? And they get so, they're both relieved and pissed at the same time. And it, it really has to do with matching the appropriate messenger to recipient. And then, then there's the message. And the message I think is most powerful when it's, when it has, context and an example of how you used it so that you can implement it. You know, it's really easy to say, eat less, exercise more. Okay. 
Well, everybody's heard that a thousand times. So the, the more interesting question is, why have all these people who have heard this not changed the, their behavior at all? And try to look at their daily routine and see where they slip, where they falter, and just isolate the reasons, right? And, and uh, so I think that the context and detail is really, really important. So you can give someone a cliff note, right? For instance, just like I have bird by bird on my shelf, bird by bird only means something to me because I know the story behind it. And you know what? I am going to blow the, the story, which is fine because the, the entire book is, is awesome. And there's only like one or two pages of it. Bird by Bird is the story of Anne Lamott. And she remembers when she was a kid, she came home at one point and her, her, I think it was her little brother was sitting at the table with all of these books about birds all over the place. And he'd had an entire school term to put together a term paper about some aspect of birds. And he'd put it off, put it off, as many of us do, until the, the night before. And he was having this complete nervous breakdown, you know, head in his hands. And her dad walked over and sat down next to him and kind of threw, put an arm around the shoulder. He said, just take it bird by bird, buddy, bird by bird. <laughs> <laughs> so bird by bird has this meaning to me because of the context and the story. Uh, so I, I think that if you're just doling out or receiving fortune cookies, it's not going to do you very much good unless there is detail that is going to stick. And very often the detail is a story. I like that a lot. All right. If you were giving a TED Talk on something you're not known for, what would it be? Uh, stoicism, probably. You are say. totally. Nope. Nope. Disqualified. I you you have produced audiobooks on stoicism. All right. All right. You, sure. you are a professional stoicism promoter. <laughs> All right. Give me a second. Let me think about that. Let's see, can't do language learning because I've already talked about that. Yeah, no, this is particularly hard for you because you, you've dabbled in so many places. Yeah, something I'm not known for. How to get off stimulants. How about that? Oh, interesting. Which yeah. stimulants are you talking about here? Well, I used to be, and this came from wrestling. Actually, I was upperclassman. It introduced me to ephedrine, caffeine, and aspirin as a stack. And I got really hopped up and, and dependent on that, which is a legal stack, but it's very, very strong. I don't recommend it to anyone. What does it do? Uh, it makes you feel like you're on speed and also helps with fat loss. But you, you develop a dependency very, very, very quickly. And uh, then getting off it is just horrific. So... I think I would I would maybe give a presentation on how to intelligently say come off of coffee. If you drink too much coffee, how do you how do you get off of that train? How do you put the the train maybe in a different sense back on the rails? And if if you wanted to get to a point where you're only drinking tea, how do you go from five cups a day of coffee to tea? There aren't great instructions out there on this that I found. Uh, there there probably are somewhere, but I I haven't found methodical, defensive, defensible rather way of doing that. And I've, I've, I've put a lot of thought into it. So maybe I would give a talk about how to get off the stimulus. Well, what is the quick version of your talk? The quick version of the talk is going, probably going to, uh, and I've done this before, but going to tablets of caffeine that are cut into very exact dosages as opposed to relying on coffee which is very inconsistent in 
terms of milligrams of caffeine per liter, let's say, or milliliter, whatever it might be. Uh, so I would move people to decaf coffee for the mouthfeel and oral fixation while dosing them with, say, to start with, whatever their baseline is. So it could be, if I'm, I'm making this up now, but if a, I think a Vibrin is 200 milligrams of caffeine, so you might have, could use a different type of caffeine, maybe caffeine anhydrous, cut that into quarters, now you have 50 milligrams. And you can, over time, titrate down by in 50 milligram increments. And then at some point, start switching to, say, black tea or matcha or sencha, something with a higher caffeine content as tea, then over time, gradually reducing to the point where you're having, say, green tea and no additional caffeine in, in tablet form. So it'd be something along those lines, but it would provide an exact schedule. If this is your prescribed schedule for avoiding caffeine withdrawal, which is a miserable, miserable thing. You're making me feel great about my general aversion to caffeine. But this actually, <laughs> this actually brings up a thing I'm interested in, which is, are you a big nootropics user? I am not a big smart drug user, and uh, I've tried everything, uh, particularly in college. I was importing different drugs from Europe under the FDA personal importation policy. I tried everything. I've used just about everything, and I've come to appreciate how sensitive an instrument the brain is. This is true of the body in general. And you can really do a lot of long-lasting damage if you disrupt or impact using these drugs negative feedback loops. So to provide a – I've just come to believe that there is no biological free lunch. So if you take something and you're like, oh, my God, I feel so much smarter and faster. This must be like NZT from Limitless. Well, if you don't know what the side effect is, you just don't know what the side effect is, but there is a side effect. And if there is a if there is a large amplitude of effect, there's going to be a commensurately large amplitude of side effect. And it's just your job to find what it is. And if you can't, you should be very worried. So if someone says, hey, I eat modafinil like candy. I've done that for five years. This is ProVisual. It's an anti-narcolepsy drug that's used by mm -hmm. a lot of people in Silicon Valley. I've used modafinil for five years. There are no side effects. And then you, the next question you should ask them is, does modafinil do anything? Oh, yeah, it's like night and day. Okay, those two things don't go together in my mind. If, if it is burning some finite substrate that you produce in the body, which it is, there is a penalty or a price to be paid. And much like, say, if you start supplementing with testosterone, if you start injecting testosterone and anthate or cypionate, whatever it might be, your gonads, in the case of men, right? So your, your Leydig cells and the testes will stop producing testosterone or at the very least cut back dramatically. I mean, 80, 90%. So your balls will end up like, like raisins. And if you suddenly stop taking testosterone, you are now in a world of hurt because the Leydig cells, and, and I'm just drawing an analogy because I, I believe the same type of self-regulation exists in many other areas in the body, and it does, you have the hypothalamus pituitary testosterone axis. So the hypothalamus releases a hormone that then hits the pituitary, uh, which then releases something called luteinizing hormone, which people sometimes in inject as HCG, which is much more 
a flame of fire and they realize that then triggers the lytic cells in the testes to release testosterone. So when you mess up one of those points in an axis like that, you create a whole cascade of problems in your system where you can. So that's a very long way of saying that I have reverted to whole foods whenever possible for performance advantage. So I am, if I'm going to consume something that gives me a slight, say, cognitive upper type of feeling and performance, then I'll use something like yerba mate tea. I want to use something that's been used for hundreds or thousands of years, if at all possible. And only in very dire circumstances will I use something like a prescription drug that is being used off-label as a smart drug. So that's interesting to me because I feel like this hits a little bit at the, are there things that in 40 or 50 years culturally we're going to look back on and, and have a very different view of? And knowing people who take modafinil, knowing people who take Adderall, knowing people who take uh, less so Ritalin actually, I do sometimes wonder, are we all going to look dumb in 50 years for, for not being on this? We were just, we were just, we hit the point where it had already been invented, but we weren't sure enough of the side effects yet. <laughs> And that in the future, everybody's yeah. going to be, you know, hyper-focused and hyper-productive and, and, you know, just generally more cognitively capable. But, but it sounds like your, your view on that is no, that the, the cost of this stuff will come clear. It might. I can't think of many examples. I can't think of a single example where you get a biological free lunch, where something has a huge magnitude of positive effect with no side effects. I, I can't think of one example. And... Uh, therefore, I tread with caution. But I don't think the key to succeeding competitively now or in 10 years is going to be doing 20% more activities. I, I don't think that is going. I think the race will go to the focused, not to the prolific, at least if we're talking about depths versus breadth. I think the Josh Waitzkins of the world will be fine forever. And the people who are just trying to, to clear their inbox 10% faster by taking modafinil are, are going to flame out. I think they'll be re replaceable at best. So I, I, don't, I don't feel as though I need to compete against other people to do more things. To do more with the fewer critical few targets that I've chosen, yes. But I, I really do think that in a world of distraction, and push notifications, the ability to single task, to focus on one thing for several hours, is a, it is a superpower. If you can develop that, you'll be fine, which is why books like The Effective Executive are so important. So the, the question I usually end the podcast on is a recommendation of three books, but you've recommended a bunch of books here. So instead, I'm going to ask you to recommend three podcasts you've listened to that you would recommend <laughs> other people check out. <laughs> oh, this guy named Tim Ferriss. He has a the Tim Ferriss show. <laughs> boo! I know. Boo! <laughs> so besides that one, I would say that I really enjoy Sam Harris. Controversial figure for sure, but brilliant, I think, and uh, very, very hyper logical. Sam Harris, Jocko Willink would be another relatively new entrant to the scene. What are these folks' podcasts called? Uh, Sam, Sam Harris is Harris waking up. Right? Is waking up. Jocko Willink is Jocko Podcast. <laughs> uh, quite easy to find. And third, I would say my all-time favorite podcast 
is Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. And I would suggest to people, if they can, start with Wrath of the Khans, which is about Genghis Khan, also referred to as Genghis Khan. There's a multi-part series on Genghis Khan, which is just phenomenal. It's so, so good. It will blow minds. So Dan Carlin, Hardcore History. Tim Ferriss, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Tim Ferriss. Thank you to him for taking the time, to all of you for taking the time. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week.